Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He is the author of The Greeks on Global History, which is also the title of this episode. Please welcome Roderick Beaton. And before we start, I want to say that this is going to be a two-part history, because like his book, we're going to talk from 1500 BC until today, 2023. And because it's such a huge topic, you're going to cover 1500, year, 1500 years each episode, so first... And we're going to end this episode by the time of Constantine. And next week, we're going to pick up from Constantine until today. And uh, we don't quite a lot to go through. But first, I was open with how did you get so fascinated by the Greeks? Well, it's very, it's a, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's a great pleasure to, uh, to meet and uh, to talk to you and your audience about my uh, about my book i've been fascinated by the greeks ever since i was a teenager i must have been 13 or 14 when i first had the opportunity with my family to go to greece as you know a simple impressionable british tourist mm. but i also had the good fortune at the, sa- at the very same time to begin learning ancient greek as an optional extra class at school and uh, there weren't very many people in the class. It was an unusual choice to make, um, but I loved it. It was my favourite lesson. And I think really right from that very first impression, I was, I'd been left ever since with that double experience of an ancient language that's very difficult but very challenging and that I loved learning, and actually seeing the place, hearing the people, um, there was a lot of, you know, touristic sea and sunshine mixed up with that. But it was just the, the wonderful liveliness of Greece as I experienced it, coupled with the language that was 3,000 years old. And I just thought this was fantastic. I've stayed with it ever since. Right. Um, let's begin with the year 1500 BC, because that's where most, I believe, historians start to consider the beginning of ancient Greece history. I mean, don't have a lot, to, from what I recall, we don't have a lot to go on before 1500. Is that when we started to see that like, that's the time of Homer, right? The beginning of Homer's Odyssey on the Iliad, right? So, what did that, is that around the time when writing started coming into the Greek world? Is that why we have so little? before 15 BC? No, well, I mean, it's a very, I mean, that's a very interesting question. And I mean, actually, there are lots of different possible starting points. And, um, you know, some histories of ancient Greece start later, um, others go back much further, because obviously, there were civilizations, there were Mm. people, there were palaces, there are archaeological remains in Greece, which go back 1000s of years before 1500 BC. Mm. But 
I took the starting point, um, which is basically the point of reference throughout the whole book, the Greek language. Mm. Now, throughout the many millennia of what we call prehistory, that is human experience before there was written, there were written records, we know that people lived in Greece, in the area of today's Greece. We don't know for certain what language they spoke, um, and we can only learn about them through their physical remains, through archaeology, through digging up burials and graves and so on. Um, but that can, that can only take you so far, though, it only take, Exactly, it only takes you so far. Um, and I wanted to start with the first people that we know spoke a form of the same language that's still spoken today. And that takes you back to the actual written records are dated nowadays. There's been a lot of argument about this, but they're probably dated to 1400 BCE. Mm. Um, and I take it just a little bit further back, because obviously in order to be writing the records in that language, the people must have been speaking it for at least 100 years before yeah. that. I took a round number and I also uh, took uh, an event that at the time must have been quite recent, but which had a literally seismic effect on the whole region where these Greek speakers lived. And that was the explosive eruption of the volcano that we know today as Santorini or Thera in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And we know that that caused untold devastation. People must have thought it was a visitation of the gods, that you know, the world was ending. And that had happened probably about 1540, 1550. So I'd like, I wanted to start the book about 1500, where you've got uh, a bunch of, quite a small bunch probably of people who speak this language in the southern part of today's Greece, perhaps on some of the Aegean islands. And let's just tell the story. Let's look at what they were doing then and what they went on to do after that. That's how it starts. So, so let's begin with Homer because he's obviously one of the most famous writers, and I do, I do believe, if I recall correctly, you do begin with him as well. And there is this is of course the suggestion if that it was one one person or it was written kind of like folk tales. Do you, do you think that that's kind of the case? Do you think there was one person called Homer that is kind of a later synonym for the Iliad? And well, the, the truth. Yeah, I mean, the truth is that nobody knows if there ever really was a, a single person called Homer. Um, I think probably most specialists, most scholars today uh, take the view that the poems, the enormously long uh, and marvellous narrative poems, the epics that we know as the Iliad and the Odyssey, probably had been taking shape over hundreds of years before the time when they were first written down. Mm. And people don't even agree now about when that was. It could have been around about 800 BC when the alphabet that we still use was invented for the first mm. time. It could have been a couple of hundred years even after that. But mm. it's pretty likely that these stories were being told, we're almost certain, these stories about heroes and about a great war between Greeks and the city of Troy, they've been being told for centuries before the poet came along. And one of the great sort of literary historical puzzles is, was it an actual accumulation? If there was a person called Homer, 
did he just write down what he heard that other people had made up before him? Or was there a genius who gathered together lots of scattered different stories that different people told him at different times? And this single person had the idea of writing down one long narrative. We just don't know how that happened. What we do know is that these two great long poems are the first works of literature, of poetry, narrative that have existed, they've constantly been written, they were being recopied and read aloud and commented on and imitated and discussed in every generation from that time to this. So that literally what we now call world literature begins with the poems attributed to Homer. And now we're going to come back to Alexander later, of course, and refer to Alexander's brain. There's a legend that says that he slept with the Iliad and, or, and the Odyssey under his pillow every night. There's this legend that what kind of form, and I saw this question on Reddit of all places, but what kind of form, and I'm trying to drop the thing, what kind of form would the Iliad look like that, then? Was it a stone tablet? Was it a papyrus that Alexander allegedly had slept on every night? Yeah, good. A good point. I mean, you know, we tend to, th- you know, we think of a book as being the kind of book that, you know, we we're talking about. But mm-hmm. of course, books like that didn't exist in those days. No, what it would have been would have been uh, one or more likely several rolls of papyrus. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the papyrus reeds that grow in, in Egypt along the Nile were <clears throat> sort of mashed up and flattened and made into into long rolls of paper. And people wrote in columns along those rolls and then they put them on a kind of spindle and, uh, you know, sort of rolled it up a bit like rolling a cigarette, uh, but very much longer, obviously. And then as you read, you would kind of unwind the spindle. It was like, you know, spooling through an old uh, cinema film. Mm. Uh, let's say. I don't think there's, a, there's not exactly a digital equivalent that I could think of. Right. But yes, it would have, it would have been something it would have been something like uh, something like that a, a papyrus roll. So let's begin with forming of cities. When did these civilizations start form place in ancient Greece, like Athens, later Sparta, and, and other other cities among the one line of what in today known as Greece? Well, this seems to have happened over a long period of time. And it's a time that we, again, we don't really know much about because um, there, 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 weren't, there wasn't very much being written down at the time until the, until the alphabet was, uh, uh, was invented. By the time the alphabet was invented, we find uh, communities on, traveling on ships all around the, what we think of as the Greek island, but also much further afield. Greeks got on ships and they went right round the Mediterranean, uh, through the Straits into the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov in today's Ukraine and southern Russia, um, northern Turkey. And wherever they went, they, you know, they sort of parked their ship on the shore. They built what they called a city. Um, it was quite a small community. And they found a way of, obviously, they must have found some way of working with the people who already lived there. They mostly didn't fight with them to begin with anyway. They just settled in these cities. And that meant that you had lots and lots of these little groups of people setting up, um, uh, setting up the hundreds of cities. Uh, 
And they were on their own. They'd no single leader to tell them how to do it. They'd no religion, I mean, they had a religion, but they didn't have a kind of religious revelation such as Christianity or Islam offers. So the gods weren't really there to tell them how to do it either. They consulted oracles and they argued about what the gods really, really meant. But basically, the Greeks of those early days, these early centuries, had to work it out for themselves. And in doing that, they invented the beginning of what we today call politics. Mm. The word politics comes from the Greek word for a city-state, which is polis. And politics just means how you run your city-state. So let's talk about the form of politics and... uh... Eventually, in especially in Athens, of course, the form of democracy. But what was the, in the early? Do you have an idea what the early like hierarchies in the in the civilizations such as Athens, Sparta, etc. Where when like when they, when they, the aristocracy kind of start taking form in in these cities? Yes, and in some ways, I mean, they were surprisingly modern because the when we first hear about what's going on in these cities. Um, it is very political. It's about class. It's about wealth. It's about inequality. And in city after city, we read about the the landowning wealthy classes, the people who can afford horses and expensive armor, and they're kind of at loggerheads with the ordinary people. The literate, the phrase hoi poloi, meaning the, the rather dismissive phrase for everybody else, is actually a Greek word, meaning the many. So you've got this kind of face-off between the many and the few. Mm. And in many of these city-states also, you would get a phenomenon that we're all too familiar with in the in in recent years, where a single strongman seizes power and basically bribes and bullies his way to um, impose his will on all the other citizens. So really, city-states fall into three different kinds. There's what they call tyrannies, and a tyrant is actually just a strong man. I mean, someone like you know today's Putin is the obvious example. Right. It would. It wouldn't. Uh, it didn't necessarily mean that you were were just like you said a bad guy in the beginning, a tyrant. That's or right. Wasn't, wasn't Persilis, I believe, a tyrant as well considered, if I remember correctly? Uh, which one? Sorry, Persilis. If I say his name right, I believe. Uh, not sure. I got that one. Uh, <laughs> Don't worry. But yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, tyrants were not necessarily tyrannical, but uh, ancient Greek philosophers uh, basically hated the idea of of this the single strong man. So, the, you know, what they called tyranny, they regarded as something that was very bad. Uh, very common also, was, again, it's the words that exist, was oligarchy. Mm. That is, you've got the wealthy citizens band together, they keep out the rest, they make the rules, but it's still a collective dis- collective decision-making. And then out of the mix of and the, the competition between the social classes, the haves and the have-nots, you also get, in Athens, at the end of the 6th century BC, you get the first uh, beginning of what came to be called demokratia, that is democracy. And this was the idea that actually the whole mass of the citizenry collectively make the decisions. It's literally 
people's rule. And that emerged around about the year or shortly around before the year 500. And it really took off for several hundred years in many of the Greek city-states uh, after that. It was never easy. It was constantly being, uh, it was constantly in competition with uh with oligarchs of his tyrants, and eventually it was rolled up. It was it was rolled up by mighty kings and emperors, but it lasted for hundreds of years, and it laid the foundations for the democratic systems that we know today. Now there was there was another superpower, another maybe not superpower. That that's kind of a strong word, but it was another power, and, and I will mostly refer to these two cities because those are the well known. Uh, cities in ancient Greece, of course, I remember referring to Sparta. So when, when did Sparta become a major rival? And when did Sparta civilization start to thrive and try to compete with Athens? During the, again, it was during the 6th century and the 5th century, probably actually at the end of the 5th century, they actually fought um, for 27 years a bitter war between them and they marshaled all the other city-states into alliances um, against each other. It was a, a tragic waste that so much of these, you know, this civilization that invented uh, so, so many things that we still value and treasure today, they would never really find a way of, um, you know, of living with each other. Um, the Greeks were, they were brilliant at inventing politics and finding political systems that worked within quite small states, the city-states. Right. But they but they never they never got it together to to create the equivalent system of what we would call today international relations. They only you know they were constantly jockeying for power, um, they were constantly fighting against each other. They did have these they had these great festivals. Um, every every few years, they had the, the most famous, of course, were the Olympic Games, mm. and that meant that all the people came together from all the Greek city states, from all over the Mediterranean, and for a few weeks they stopped fighting, and they slugged it out instead in athletic contests, the beginning of athletics and sport as we know them today. So you can actually see in the story of ancient of the ancient Greeks how athletics and sport grew out of warfare as a kind of stylized substitute for fighting it out on the battlefield. But sadly, the Greeks spent an awful lot of their time wasted, is tempting to say, actually slugging it out on the battlefield. It took them hundreds of years. And they were always sufficiently evenly matched that neither Athens nor Sparta nor any of the other city-states that uh, tried to put their oar in, mm. ever really came out top dog for long. And in the end, they fought themselves to a standstill. It is fascinating to me, and we, of course, are going to discuss Alexander in a second, but it is fascinating to me how they never really were empire-interested, that they never tried to unify Greece, or never tried to build themselves an empire, like you know, we are, of course, going to talk about the uh, Carthage and Rome in in a few minutes, but <clears throat> that's fascinating that they, they never tried to unify their cities and they never they, they didn't seem to be interested in that. No, you're right, and I mean by this time we're dealing. This is a period when you know the alphabet's been invented. Greeks are in, you know they're in, they're they're writing their history, they're writing down uh, their philosophical speculations. They're and they're talking about themselves, but they're actually writing down the debates that they have. So we can we can follow those 
today. And from those debates, we can un- we can see it clearly how the thought developed. What really mattered to the Greeks was these small city states was not so much exactly what you say, sort of unification or empire. It was uh, the great buzzword for them was another Greek word we still have today, autonomia, autonomy. It really mattered. They fought and they killed for the principle that no one outside the bounds of their own really quite small city-state could tell them what to do. And Mm -hmm. each city-state fought for the same principle. So it's a kind, if you like, it's a kind of um, centrifugal. It's kind of the opposite of empire building. Instead of coming together, as empires often did and as nation states have done in more recent times, the Greek city-states kind of flew apart. And you see that even in the fact that, you know, they spent so much time getting on getting on those ships and taking their chattels and their wives and their children to find a city somewhere else. Mm. You know, there was, it was kind of bursting apart, a bit like the early universe, I suppose. Yeah, we're, of course, going to talk about the Persian invasion soon. But before that, what they talked about religion, and we mentioned it briefly. But when the when did the stories did they genuinely believe that in the just lived upon Saint Mount Olympus? Is is it? And uh, and I, something that fascinated me when I read Herodotus last summer was that they didn't seem to have the same gods like we think, you know, you know, Zeus, you know. The Aries and all those. I don't. I don't have. I remember some of the names. I don't uh, in right now all of all of them. But you know, there's several c- different cities seem to worship different gods. Like Sparta seem to worship Aries, or for example, and I'm, it's probably not correct, but Athens, maybe, for example, Zeus. Like they didn't have the same gods they worship. Like we think they might, if because I thought that until I read Herodotus myself, where it seemed that that. Oh, they probably worshipped all the gods. The same cities had the same, but that's not the case, is it? Well, ancient Greek religion is very different from any of the monotheistic religions that we know today. I mean, it's completely different from either Christianity or Islam. There was no real, there was no real system of belief, um, and indeed, it didn't really matter so much what people believed. Rather, there was a whole series of stories about a whole series of gods and goddesses. And people just added these stories one on top of another. If wherever you lived, you you know, if you could you would build a temple in honor of the god that, you know, that took your imagination or that had some sort of mythical connection with your city. Um often, you know, the Athenians uh, liked to believe that their city had been a founded had been founded by the goddess. Athena, who has more or less the same name, um, but he, but they weren't even very sure about that. There was another god, Poseidon, the god of the sea, um, who apparently, you know, and they liked to think that, you know, Poseidon and Athena had actually competed, which was going to be top god for Athens. They were quite fanciful stories, and there was no, there was no kind of control over these stories. Um, there, there were lots of, you know, there were there were priests, there were rituals. Um, but this was handed down by word of mouth from generation to generation. It wasn't sort of regulated. There was no supreme religious authority. And as I say, nobody terribly minded what you know what you believed. 
so long as in each city you took part in the communal festivals um they were great on the idea of animal sacrifice they were constantly mm. killing large numbers of animals um, was human sacrifice involved as well in the beginning or was that never a case in ancient greece Oh, well, that's one of these fascinating stories. There are lots of stories in Greek mythology about human sacrifice. It never seems to have happened in historical times, but there are lots of indications that it did happen in prehistoric times. Mm. And actually, there is archaeological evidence now from Crete that during the Bronze Age, um, <clears throat> human sacrifice was practiced by the Minoans of Crete, who spoke a different language from Uh, the Greeks, but they were obviously very much involved in the birth of Greek civilization. But no, in the classical times, the the great sort of communal activity was um, animal sacrifice. You kill these animals, you butcher them, you um, basically in in the in the open air in front of the temple of the gods, you have your kind of slaughterhouse, your butcher's shop, and finally, what it all culminates in a gigantic civic barbecue. And the theory was that the gods. Uh, conveniently, really liked the smoke that went up from the barbecue. And the mortal humans got to eat the good bits of the animals they'd killed. So there was a certain, there was something, there was a certain amount of pragmatism in this, uh, in this uh, religious, uh, in these religious practices uh, as well. So let's talk about the, of course, the big, this is the arguably the big villain in quote unquote, quote Persia and then Persian invasion of Greece. Is that, is that because it does seem that it kind of did unify Sparta and Greece, that they didn't kind of unify at the time to fight against Persia in when they when they came to invade it. I mean, of course, I want to begin before we go to the Battle of Marathon with with the infamous Nonidas and the, the infamous three hundred. So let's talk about the Persian invasion and how Persia became kind of the big villain if you will, in antiquity. Well, I mean, you've got these Greeks who are scattered in little settlements all around the Mediterranean. And then, <clears throat> as I say, when they when they started out, there was no one really on these shores to prevent them doing that. But as time went on, uh, far further to the east, in today's Middle East, an enormous empire was coming together under the rule of uh, the um, Iranian-speaking kings known as the Achaemenid dynasty. And during the 6th century uh, <clears throat> BCE, the, these gathered together really the whole of the Middle East. They conquered Egypt, they conquered today's Turkey. And it seems to have been, you know, in world history, it's one of the biggest, em- it was perhaps the biggest empire the world had known up to that time. Mm-hmm. And um, at, shortly after the year 500, the, uh, the Persian great king, the king of kings, began to set his sights across the Mediterranean towards Europe. And the first people you got to if you crossed into Europe from Asia were the Greeks. So you've got this classic sort of David and Goliath confrontation. On the one side, a unified, mighty, militarized, monarchical empire. On the other, the scattered, uh, sort of self-defining, self-inventing Greeks who got no kind of um, you know military concentrated military power or or kind of supranational organization at all. And yet, against all expectation, uh, when they were invaded, some of the Greek city-states, not all of them, some of them did 
finally overcome their differences among each other. They fought against the common enemy and during two wars fought in 490 and in 480 to 479 BCE, the Greeks won. They saw off the Persian invader. Hmm. Which of course brings us next because although they did unify, and we, are, we are kind of skipping a few centuries ahead, but we've got 1500 years to go through. So do forgive yeah. me here. But so, so, we, so we kind of have to skip ahead a bit and we can't cover everything and if you want to read more about ancient research, you should absolutely read this book. If you, if this episode is intriguing enough to, to do further research on this. But we have to talk about, even though they did unify for a brief second there, they did eventually have more or less a civil war, which I'm, of course, referring to the famous Peloponnesian War. And this is where we get one of the... Though Herodotus's first is kind of more or less first account of... War and you should absolutely read Tacitus' work as well. And this one was, he's one of the utmost historians on the topic because he was a general in the war himself. You know, he, he, though he died before he was, he did finish his book, but still, he was this. How, how essential is this book in understanding? I guess my question is the Peloponnesian War, and that's oh. sort of, and how relate, how if you read the Peloponnesian War, how. How, re- how uh, reliable is it? Well, I mean, there are the two great Greek historians of the 5th century BCE, and between them, they literally invented history, both as a way of telling a story and as a way of making sense of the past. Nothing like it had been done before. The first you mentioned was Herodotus, and it's because it's through Herodotus' Uh, histories written not long after the end of the Persian Wars that we know all about the Persian Wars and therefore we know of what the Greeks did and um, really it's the fact, in a way, it's the fact of making a monumental history book out of these events that really fixed them in the mind of every generation since. So history really begins with the writing down of the story of the Persian Wars by Herodotus. A generation, maybe two generations after Herodotus comes Thucydides. And as you say, Thucydides took part himself. He's an Athenian. He took part in the war that lasted for 27 years against Sparta. Um, we know that he lived long enough to see the war through to its end, but he we don't know when he died, but he left his work unfinished. He didn't actually bring it up to the the end of the story. But Thucydides is a far more meticulous, in many ways, a much more modern historian than Herodotus. Herodotus is a great storyteller. Um, He's a character. He presents himself in his pages. He... um, he enjoys all stories. He's. I, I really did enjoy the story where he says to these two kids that he, I think it was they were going to raise a goat or something, and then then they were done, or they were who were speaking first, and then there's these two kids that apparently one was more intelligent than the other. I don't remember that it's a while ago since I read Herodotus, mm. but it, that was one of one of the most amusing stories from. I find. Well, he. Yeah, I mean, he's he, you know he 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 gathered. I mean, he in many he was 
I mean, he was the first historian, but he was also the first journalist. Mm. I mean, he tried. He seems to have travelled all over the yeah. known world of his time. He interviewed lots of people. He must have kept notes, and he, you know, he had an eye for a good story, and he kept them and he told them. Sometimes, you know, some of the stories he tells are outrageous and obviously not true. Mm. And sometimes he kind of he kind of visibly winks in the text and says, "Well, I'm not sure whether to believe this or not, but you know, make up your own mind." Right. Um, the other thing he does that. Um, uh, a lot of later historians did too, was he 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 made up long speeches that he put into the mouths of the characters in the stories. Um, and I mean, these can't be, you know, there was no recording in those days. Nobody could know what King Xerxes said on the eve of a battle. But, you know, Herodotus had several pages of what the uh, of the of the of the speeches. And this really it dramatizes history. And Thucydides actually did that too. It may be that some of his um, speeches are based on notes uh, of real speeches, because Thucydides, that's what I was going on to say, Thucydides was much more of a sort of meticulous, careful, cautious historian. He checked his sources. He's much more reticent about uh, putting himself in his narrative. He's very conscious of historical method. And... Um, and really between the lines, he's he's clearly, you know, he's also he's got he's a bit got it in for Herodotus and you know, he wants to make his own mark on on history. And in many, you know, professional historians probably owe more or even more to Thucydides than they do to Herodotus. But between them, these two really invented the genre of history and that way of, well, if history is a science, they created that too. So, of course, we had to move on as well. And next up is, uh, of course, Phil. I want to begin before going to Alexander, Philip of Macedon, because mm. he is almost essential in, uh, as well to talk about before in understanding Alexander. And so let's talk about Philip II of Macedon before we go into Alexander for a bit. Okay. Uh, well, okay. I mean, Phil, um, well, let's start with Macedonia to begin with. Yeah. Because. Um, the Greek world was, you know, there was no place called Greece that was actually marked out on the map. As I was saying, there were all these different city-states and they all spoke, all the people spoke Greek and they kept themselves, they fought for their autonomy from one another. But they didn't all organise themselves in that way. And the Greeks on the far, on the northern edge of that world, in today's southern Balkans and northern Greece, um, uh didn't actually form a city-state at all. They kept a more traditional hereditary kind of kingdom. It was rather, it was quite primitive, it was quite rough. Um, the Greeks in the cities like Athens and Sparta um, terribly looked down their noses on these semi-barbarous Greeks of Macedonia. Um, you know, they did the, one of the worst things they did was they didn't, they drank wine neat without putting water in it, well, just imagine. Mm. But they also got absolutely raving drunk and behaved extremely badly um so the Greeks they were the, frowned upon more or less by they were the... very much they were very much frowned upon they were on the edge between greeks and you know in fact commas barbarians mm. but they were they were powerful and philip ii really got it together he pulled together this um uh rather shapeless kingdom of macedonia and he turned it he turned it into a military superpower and this the superpower that he created in just a couple of decades was more than a match for any Greek city-state or even an alliance of several of them. So in the year 338 BCE, Philip 
uh, brought his Macedonian army south into Greece. He defeated uh, a rare alliance of the Athenians and their rivals, the Thebans, in the Battle of Chaeronea, or Chaeronea, it's pronounced in different ways. That's in 338 BCE. And from that time, Philip really became the master of all the Greek-speaking world. And Philip conceived the idea, partly, I think, in order to draw the to draw together the city-states that he'd conquered, to reconcile them perhaps to his takeover, he conceived this idea that what he was going to do next was he was going to take the war out of Europe into Asia and actually make war on the Persians who had previously invaded Greece. And Philip uh, set up this, he planned this expedition and he, in effect, conscripted all the Greek city-states to send troops to aid this expedition. And he presented it as a kind of revenge match for the Persian Wars of a century and a half mm. before. But is this where <laughs> is this when he got shot in the eye of your blind and in the one eye? Because there is this one <clears throat> battle where I don't remember which one it is, but there is in the Dolls either in Dolls book on Philip and Alexander, mm. he does mention that he got blinded. I don't remember where, but it does get shot with an arrow in one eye and he get blinded. Yeah, I don't think we know what um, what caused the wound, whether it was an arrow or a sword, but it was certainly, he he lost the sight of one eye. That was quite early in his career. Um, he also had a wound in his leg, apparently, which meant gave him a limp. And um, those were, and, and those physical traces were found on the, um, in the tomb that was unearthed in 1978, which is believed to be the tomb of Philip II. But, no, so th this happened. Those, those, um, those injuries happened to him. Uh, happened to him earlier, but it was after he'd, he'd announced he was going to make this new war against Persia. Um, he'd, um, you know, he'd, he'd sent off the advance guard, and he had a great ceremony in his capital city, and in the he had a Greek-style theatre, a semicircular theatre with an auditorium, and there must have been about ten thousand spectators there. Being Macedonians, they'd all been drinking heavily the night before, but at dawn on the day, um, the the king led his retinue in front of all these spectators, and they were going to put on put on a show, a spectacle, um, to impress everybody during the day. And to begin with, he started by wheeling on or carrying on uh, statues of the twelve gods, and then there's a thirteenth statue, which was Philip the second. Philip the second himself was the king. Mm becoming a god and minutes afterwards uh somebody ran up to him and stabbed him in the chest in front of ten thousand people it, it was rumored that alexander was part of this assassination wasn't there well indeed there were rumors at the time uh there have been rumors ever since um and i mean i discuss this in my book um i won't tell you what conclusion i can i, I come to <laughs> But, um, you know, Alexander is certainly lined up there with the suspects because, you know, the, it was a lackey who was hired to carry out the killing and he himself was killed very shortly afterwards. So, you know, there was no uh, no evidence. It was an astonishingly stage-managed murder mm -hmm. in broad daylight, in public view. But the upshot of that murder was that the 18-year-old Alexander became the next king of the Macedonians. And this, of course, is the Alexander we know as, in inverted commas, the great. 
if I remember correctly, it wasn't were supposed to be him that was taking over. It didn't have other brothers that was as well candidates to take over the throne, wasn't there? Yeah, Alexander killed a few other people just to make sure that no one else had to go at the uh, had to go at the throne. Uh, let's be honest. I mean, Alexander is a phenomenon in world history. Um, Not I a very kind to, person. I don't warm to him as a person at all. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, let's talk, of course, this brings us to Alexander the Great, and there is this infamous story that he was kind of resenting his father because every territory that Philip II conquered was a less territory that he could not conquer himself. There's this famous, as far as far, if I remember remember correctly, that he was kind of angry at his father for this. Yes, and the, I mean there was a famous quarrel with his father, and he threw a drinking cup or a sword at him or something. And I mean, again, the Macedonian court was like that. I mean, you know, I mean it's true. We only have the the Greeks' word for it from the Athenians' word for it, and they didn't like the Macedonians, but they do come over as pretty. A, a pretty rough bunch of a pretty rough bunch of people. I think we have. I think we have to believe these stories. Um, no, Alexander seems to have set out with the determination to conquer, and he did. I mean, you know, he only lived to the age of thirty-three. So mm. just just thought of, just short of thirty-three. He won. <coughs> you know, he, he fought in a whole series of battles uh, for four massive ones against the Persians and the Persians and Indians. He never lost a battle and he created the first ever Greek empire, which spanned the whole of the middle, basically what we now call the Middle East and right into northern Pakistan and northern India, as well as the, um, the, the, the southern Balkans and Greece. I'm sure you have your grievances about this movie, but what did you think about Ridley Scott's Alexander movie? <laughs> uh, I, I I loved it actually. It was very um, it was very enjoyable. Um, I um, yeah, and also I mean it was very it was very well historically based. It had um, it had the great historian um, Robin Lane Fox as a as a consultant, and I believe uh, you know Robin was actually allowed to act a part as an extra in the um, in the film. I mean, he's written one of the best books about Alexander the Great. Um, so um, you know, it's a it's a it's a hugely enjoyable film. But I I I mean, I wasn't looking to pick historical holes in it, but I think it was you know it, it was kind of believable. And in the movie, at least, it does seem that he's fairly close to his mother. Was this the case in the, in real life as well? Was he fairly close with his mother? That really, but for the lack of a better word, tight relationship. Well, I mean, how long did that relationship last? Because they never saw each other after he was after he was eighteen and went off to Persia. But um, and his mother was the fourth of Philip's seven wives mm. um, and she clearly had uh, taken a dislike to Philip uh, in, a, in a big way um, it's very it, he was clearly closer to her than to his father mm. um, but you know we can you could kind of the, the various kind of Freudian speculations I think it is speculation we just you know we don't know enough about it yeah. is that he's his mother, but it's a fact. You know, these these are fascinating characters. So let's let's talk about this conference before we move on, because we have to, of course, talk about its 
legendary that his drone quest mm-hmm. goes all the way to India and like you said, and it, it, this is a famous story about the Indian princess who I don't remember exactly how it goes, but I think he trying to pawn servers. If I remember remember correctly, there is this famous story about the Indian princess and Alexander when he gets to India. Hmm. There is, and I'm not sure whether that's one of the one of the true stories or I mean there are quite a lot of there was quite a lot of fake news. There was a kind yeah. of, there, there was there were a whole sort of you know there's there's what's called the Alexander Romance, which was a a set of, really a set of stories that circulated for hundreds of years after after his death and had ever, ever more more wild and wonderful uh, adventures uh, in them. Um, there's a princess. There's um, there's various monsters. There are anthropophagi. There are um, uh, Priests, you know, they're um, you you can't you can't believe you can't believe it all. Yeah, but of course, he does almost conquer India, and they have elephants which kind of stops him. War elephants, but he he wanted to conquer, but his army, of course, is resistant, and they don't want to go home. They have families, they have land to take care of, and in he, he famously dies on the journey home. He never makes it, and. He never pointed out as oh, a successor either. It does it. So it, it, this the empire is kind of twirled. And, and, and again, there is a, of course, of course, a legend about his death where he says, "Isn't that that the one? You you know this better than I do. So what is what is the legend that he claims how how he chooses his successor? Well, I mean, he didn't he didn't choose a successor, but I mean, he was on his deathbed. He was only I mean, mm. he was only 30, he was only thirty two. Nobody expected him to die. Least of all himself. He clearly hadn't thought about the succession. There's something, and I forget the exact words. There's something he's supposed to have said that possibly identified one of the generals who was around his deathbed um, as the successor. But uh, the other, you know, the others, the others <laughs> refused to believe it anyway. And um, there was no very good authority, so the whole you know the whole thing fell apart after his death. The his top generals <clears throat> fell out among themselves. They basically fought for thirty years to divide up the spoils, and instead of bequeathing therefore one big empire as the you know like the Persian Empire had been, Alexander was uh, Alexander's conquests were followed by not one but three large kingdoms, one in Asia, one in Africa based in Egypt, and one in Europe based in Macedonia. And these kind of jockeyed for position uh, for the next 300 years until they were all slowly, slowly swallowed up by the new emerging power in the Mediterranean, which was, uh, which was that of Rome. Mm. Before we go on, I was there is again this legend. We can't know if it's true or not, but I'm going to get in the show, I'm sure. But Caesar, there is the story of Caesar where he cries in front of a statue, I think, of Alexander when he is 23 years old, I think, where he is so disappointed because he hasn't felt conquered nearly enough territory as Alexander by his age. And he's crying because he's so disappointed that he feels exactly. like he failed his hero. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, these stories almost certainly are true. It's fascinating, actually, that the the Roman emperors, once there were Roman emperors, and the Roman generals, including Caesar, who competed to competed with one another in effect to become emperors, though they never did, they all were 
obsessed with Alexander the Great. And in fact, I mean, I believe it's, um, I don't think it is, you don't really read this so much in history books, but I believe that the the way the Roman emperor, the role of the Roman em emperor was constructed later was really a deliberate cont continuation of the kind of kingship that was first set up by Alexander and then carried on by his immediate successors. Now, I, I want to ask about this. I'm sorry if I interrupted you there, but no, no. I, I want to ask you, because as you know, I did this justice right now, the Romans loved Alexander. And as you said, the Greeks, they viewed the Macedonians as barbarians. But how did they view Alexander after his death and his legendary conquests? How did it was did that change the Macedon Greeks view of Macedonians? So did, were they more feared after this, or were they awed on Alexander? Well, one of the things about Greeks in ancient times, perhaps also in modern, is they could never agree among themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, some Greeks fought with Alexander, um, followed his armies all the way. Um, <clears throat> they must have admired what he was doing. Um, many late, certainly later Greek historians. Uh, hugely admired him and wrote uh, admiring histories of what he had done. Um, but, you know, others, frankly, hated him. And the um, the great, uh, the great Athenian statesman, Demosthenes, um, you know, led the cheers in the theatre in Athens um, on the day that news came that Alexander had died. Um, they, you know, they thought that you know Alexander had died. They were going to be liberated from the Macedonians. Um, there was no love lost. Mm. Um, so, but obviously, as time went on and Greeks began to see how their language, their culture had become, you know, spread so widely through the world, they came, they became more to terms with uh, with what had uh, with what had happened. So, as I say, by the time the historic histories that we read about Alexander today came to be written, which was under the time, of, in the time of the Roman Empire, um, the Greek historians are pretty much cheerleaders for uh, Alexander. But even they, I mean, they don't conceal all the, um, you know, all the bad things that he, uh, that he did. They're quite, they're capable of, you know, they're critical, they're critical of things that they report and they don't cover them up. So something that you forgot to mention was that it, one of the reasons that did die so young was that he was struggling with alcohol as well. He was he was more or less an alcohol, alcoholic, wasn't he? Again, I mean, that's... It seems so. I mean, and again, I'm not sure that so much a personal trait. The evidence suggests that actually, it, you know, the um, Macedonian kings were expected to be alcoholics. They were certainly, I mean, not alcoholics in our terms, but part of the kind of kind of um you know mach machismo of these of the ruling class in macedonia was they had to be able to drink vast quantities um uh, uh but also not show it so you know is it not it's it's more it's not so much alcoholism in the clinical sense perhaps as a kind of ostentatious uh behavior but of course it would have had a medical effect and um, I mean, some say it was, you know, he drank himself to death. Others said he was poisoned. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just, you know. And, and we should probably mention as well, so again, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but we should mention that alcohol wasn't as strong back then as it is today, was it? So it, it's different perspective what they consider alcoholism. 
back in those days, the versus now that alcohol, if you had to mix it with water to make good like the wild wine, it's you know it's not as strong as today's alcohol, right? That's right. I mean, I don't think there was any. I don't think the whiskies and whiskies and brandy or the the raki that you drink in those parts of the world today. I don't think the, these. I don't think these were uh, uh, these were around. So of course you mentioned Roman, and, and I wanted to conclude that Alexander's story first. But the, the, yeah, like you said, the growing power of Rome eventually united Italy, and of course you have mentioned there's one other. There's another power we mentioned briefly, but which is Carthage, and they became a, a massive trading partner too. But and eventually Rome and Carthage went head on head on head, which is the famous Punic Wars. And <clears throat> how did the Punic Wars affect the Greek community? Did it have an effect at all on the Greek world? They did, and the reason was because. The, I mean, the Punic Wars, as you say, it was Rome against Carthage. It was north versus south, Rome in Italy, Carthage almost due south in today's Tunisia. And uh, it was a, so the war between continents, there was a war between city states. But it also became a kind of world war because uh, the, um, they, they spread, you know, they spread, it spread by land and by sea. Uh, right round the Mediterranean, uh, the Carthaginian general Hannibal famously led his army with elephants all the way through Spain, southern France, across the Alps in winter, and down into Italy, where he very nearly uh, took Rome. And if that had happened, the whole story of the Roman Empire would ne would would never have happened either. We we made an episode about alternative history where buried with really justice. What would the the world look like today? What language would we speak in? Would be, would Carthage have been the this version of Rome if they had won the Punic War? You know, would would this be some form of Carthaginian instead of the Romans languages like Spain? Uh, and how 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 would it? It would look vastly different. It, it's arguably if the Carthaginians had won over Rome in the in the Punic Wars. It surely, it surely would, but the Greek, the Greek communities, because they were spread right throughout that whole region, the Greek communities find themselves having to take sides in that war, <laughs> and that, um, I mean, the, it's quite complicated. But the upshot was that the um, uh, some of the, the Macedonians uh, took the side of the Carthaginians, and so when Rome had finished with Carthage, they moved east and had to go at the Carthaginian at the um, Macedonians. Um, and some of the Greek city-state. And that slowly, slowly snowballed. Um, Rome had disposed of its biggest rival in Carthage, and there was nothing really to stop the Romans uh, expanding outwards in all directions. And unlike the Greeks, uh, the Romans did have a sense of empire. They wanted to control other peoples, and they did devise systems for doing it, so that Rome really succeeded Persia mm -hmm. as being a highly organized a centralized empire that lasted for um well a good 500 years depending on and of course you know they discussed this in the next episode as well but it did last all the way until 1453 if you count the byzantines yeah you could say um, a millennium and a half yeah you you could so that the greeks uh, by by the middle of the second century bc had really been uh, taken into the roman orbit and um, they became uh, 
<clears throat> they became hugely embroiled in the Roman civil wars, the wars that we, we mentioned Julius Caesar already. Caesar fought a bitter civil war against his rival general Pompey the Great mm. in the middle of the first century BC. And most of that fighting actually happened in the region of today's Greece. So again, you know, Greeks are involved in uh, are involved in that uh, involved in that too. Someone we haven't mentioned though, and is uh, is a lovely chap, and I, I want to go a little bit back in time before, right before Caesar, and he was outlawed by, I believe Caesar was outlawed by him as well, and I believe you know who we're talking about is of course the ruthless sack of Athens by by the dictator Sulla. Who... Yes, indeed, that was part of a very complicated set of wars that Rome was fighting in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, but at the same time, Rome was torn apart by civil strife. And a generation before Caesar and Pompey, the rival generals that I mentioned, was a very similar rivalry between Marius and Sulla. And each of these generals, in his turn, actually led an army into Rome and imposed his will on the Roman people. And Sulla infamously became dictator of Rome for two years. But he and didn't retire, actually, unlike Caesar. He didn't, if I remember yes, correctly, he retired. Right. Absolutely right. Sulla, the, well, it's a long story. I mean, the, the role of dictator in Roman in the Roman Republic was you, it was, you were only allowed to become dictator for six months max. And then you went away again. It was an emergency. Imagine Stalin being dictator for six months. Well, quite. Yeah. It was. You know, it was an. It was. You know. It was an emergency measure. And Sulla broke the rule because he hung on. He hung on to it for two years. But even Sulla, at the end of two years, did retire to his estates, and he did actually die in his bed. Um, moving on a generation, um, Caesar got himself or proclaimed himself dictator for life and two months later he was murdered in the senate mm. because dictator for life the senators thought was too much like being a king or an emperor and the romans really hated that idea yeah. i mean and they would get the emperor eventually with augustus of course but that that wasn't rex that was that was something else but it wasn't king that's right. The Roman emperors were called by a, ver a variety of titles, and the word that actually gives us the English and other in other languages, the word emperor, imperator, originally just meant the commander of an army. It was a general, hmm. and the uh, the the emperor they took other titles, uh, but the first emperor, whose actual name was Octavian or Octavianus, in twenty seven BCE, took the title, invented the title Augustus which in English we pronounce as Augustus, and that... And we had in, a famous monk, of course, after him as well. A famous? The famous monk in the year, August. Of course, yes, indeed. After, yeah. Um, August is named after him, as, Julia, as, as July is named after his adoptive father, Julius Caesar. Um, so the yes, the Roman emperors put their, put their marks on the names of the month that we still have... Uh, we still have today, but um, Augustus invented a number a number of titles for himself. He, the name by which he's known today actually was a title; it wasn't his it wasn't his name. Uh, but he carefully avoided the Latin word rex. And right throughout the later history of the Roman 
uh, of the Roman Emperor, in Latin, no emperor was ever called Rex. Mm. The Romans, you know, they really hated the idea of, I mean, they had a monarchy and they bowed down to it, they accepted it, but they, we would, they would never use the word. On the other hand, um, half the subjects of the, of the Roman Empire spoke Greek. The, east, the whole eastern half, from the Adriatic to the Euphrates, everybody spoke and learned and wrote in Greek. And in Greek, it was, it was normal to call the Roman emperor Basileus, which was the Greek word for a king um, that had been used by Alexander and the kings who came after it, which again... And I, didn't, I, believe, I, I believe that this would be later the Byzantine emperors. And exactly. So once well. Latin, that's right. Once the, once the um, yeah. as we go forward in time, once the Roman Empire collapsed in the West and the Eastern Greek-speaking empire became, in effect, autonomous with the new capital in Constantinople, then Greek actually became the official language and the emperors were called, we call them emperors, but in their own language, the title was actually the, the old one meaning king, Basileus. Of course, you someone essential, and that's a little fellow, we don't move to Jerusalem right now. And you write about him as well. I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. That's a little fellow called Jesus Christ, who is essential. And what, what was surprising to me, because I didn't know this until we covered him a while ago, actually, on the podcast as well, is that in the beginning, in the early Hebrew was in Greek. But the, the, the Jews in the beginning, as you write about it in your book, they kind of resented Greek and this kind of resented this. They were they were hesitant in learning Greek and they were like preferred sticking themselves to the Hebrew language, didn't they? So let's let's talk about this little fellow called Jesus Christ who eventually start a religion that we know today as Christianity. Indeed, well, I mean, so far as we know, the historical person who was Jesus um, was lived in province of what was a part of the Roman province of Judea um, and his native language almost certainly his com the com common language he spoke was not Hebrew but Aramaic right. it's, uh, it, it's uh, uh, a related a Semitic language of the region that was very widely uh, very widely spoken Hebrew was the official language of the ancient Jewish religion um, but yeah. I believe it um, I'm not an expert in this but I I believe the the common language spoken by Jesus and his disciples would have been Aramaic. It was after his death when his disciples um, wanted to spread what they called the gospel, the good news that Jesus had brought to earth. They wanted to spread that and make converts beyond their own community, which spoke, in, spoke Aramaic and worshipped in Hebrew. And the common language in the eastern part of the empire that the one language you could be you could rely on that every everybody could read or everybody who could read would read that language and everybody who couldn't read would probably speak some of it that language was greek and it was just that, but just what i wanted and i'm sorry if i interrupted you a few <laughs> no. times now but that, like i wanted to say when we spoke about that greek being the main language in certain that's kind of like english there there right like english as my second language and spanish as my third language but you know in, in every respectable roman aristocrat as well they learn 
Greek, and there are several, and to mention one, for example, is the, the famous general Germanicus. He wrote several dramas in and comedies in Greek, and several other <clears throat> aristocrats as well wrote. So it's what, Greek was kind of like English today, especially in the Roman world, where most aristocrats and rich Roman they, that was a mandatory language to learn if you were to be respectable in those circles. It it absolutely was, but I mean there are also re, there are two things going on here because the first thing is that the Roman elite in the um, it changed a bit later, but during the time of Julius Caesar and Cicero and Augustus, the Roman elite had really been their education was deeply based in Greek education, mm-hmm. and exactly as you say, if you were you know, if if you were um, you know if you were really smart, really educated, you had to speak Greek. There's a there's a much quoted moment in Shakespeare's historical play of Julius Caesar, where the the orator and philosopher Cicero speaks. He's reported as speaking, and the characters say, "You know, Cicero spoke," and someone, well, "What did he say?" Well, he spoke Greek. And mm-hmm. I said, "What did he say?" Well, "Twas Greek to me." The character mm-hmm. says in Shakespeare's play, and that's become a kind of byword. You know, people don't, you know, ordinary yeah. people don't understand Greek, but educated Romans did. Um, but the other thing that the other thing that was going on at the same time and continued actually much longer was that in the parts of the Roman Empire that previously had been Greek speaking, Greek remained the language of education and commerce and just everyday communication. So, as I was saying, you know, everywhere east of the toe of Italy and the Adriatic, as far as the Euphrates and Tigris, or even the Red Sea, the the, um, Arabian Gulf, the common language there is Greek. So, when the followers of Jesus began to spread his teaching, they clearly made a conscious decision to, to do that in the everyday spoken language. And and this is fascinating because the language in which the letters of the Apostle Paul, which are the very first surviving Christian texts, and the Gospels that were written a little bit later, tell the story of Jesus' life and teaching, all of these were written in a form of Greek, not at all the Greek of the educated, the Greek of that someone like Cicero would learn, but the Greek of every day, the Greek of um, you know of of daily letter writing, of commerce, and in that way. We have both, you know, it's it's very living, it's very it's very living, it's very uh, you know hands-on kind of language, but also among other things, in addition to the religious content, the Gospels and the earliest Christ, earliest Christian writings give us a window into the form of Greek that was actually spoken by ordinary people at that time, and it is given the, how long ago that was, it is surprisingly close to the Greek that we still still speak today. So if it, like if I was to learn, learn modern Greek, which I know is way too complicated for me, but if hypothetically if I didn't know Greek, and I went back in time to, let's say, time of Jesus, would would I understand the Greek spoken in the street to them? I think you'd you'd have a much better chance than if you went back another five hundred years to mm. the time of Plato or. 400 to the time of Plato or you know five or 600 to the time of Herodotus mm-hmm. and if you go back to the time of Homer maybe seven or eight hundred years before Jesus you don't stand a chance mm-hmm. the, the Greek language actually changed more between the time of Homer and the time of Jesus than it has between the time of Jesus and today mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's because 
it's been written, you know, it, that we have the written record. So there's always been the the written text that people go back to, kind of, if you like, putting a kind of break on the process whereby languages constantly change and develop. Of course, it wasn't easy being a Christian in the early days of Christianity, and they were people, the Romans, they, they were easy, it was easy to put them as a scapegoat, to, so to speak, and Nero, in the, under the, in the fire of Rome, he loved, he immediately thought that, hey, this, these fellow, fellows might be, might be the reason for this. It's kind of like what Jews later would become for Christians, right? Right, and mm. they were the first three hundred years. So we will get to Constantine in a few minutes, but uh, the first three hundred years of Christianity was not really a fun time to be a Christian. But they were left alone, of course, but mostly because the mm. Romans were more kind of tolerant as long as they didn't step out of line. With your religion, but that was easy to why was it so easy to scapegoat Christian well, Christianity? Yeah, I mean it's a difficult one because the story, you know, the story that became part of the Christian tradition uh afterwards plays a lot of emphasis on persecution. I mean, Jesus, the historical Jesus, was after all executed as a uh, seditious criminal by the Roman authorities in Jerusalem. And again, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but I was I we spoke about this in our episode about, about Jesus as well. That Pomp and I want to mention this as this. I'm so sorry for interrupting you again, but uh, <laughs> in in the Bible, right? Pompey, Pompey, Pompey sorry, Pilatus is that it, that's the Roman. And Pilate, general, yeah, yeah, Pilate, yeah, yeah. The he's more or less portrayed as sweet in the Bible because yeah. he's given the <clears throat> option of freeing either Jesus or this other guy who's also a renowned criminal, even mm. worse. He's actually a criminal, unlike Jesus, but in reality, he was just doing his job, he was just doing mm. what he was set out to do, so he, he wasn't really weak at all, he was just. Though he was kind of insignificant at the time, he was just doing his job. That's what he did. Sure, but I mean, you know, there's a, the central, the central episode of the whole Christian story is the crucifixion, and uh, yeah, so and from that developed also the idea of martyrdom. So some of the uh, followers of Jesus during the following centuries were put to death, and. Um, sometimes in gratuitously horrific ways uh, by the Roman authorities um, on the grounds of their faith. And when you actually, when you detach the, the sort of the Christian martyr stories, um, when you detach those from the, what we know of the history of the period, um, you actually get a rather different picture. I mean, it's not that these horrific events didn't take place, they did, and clearly some Christians were um, sufficiently committed to their religion to endure unspeakable tortures and terrible deaths in order to uphold their beliefs. There's no doubt about that. But it was a very small minority of individuals who were caught up in that whole process. The great majority of Christians, in the, even in those times, neither had to nor presumably felt any great need to become martyrs um i mean you mentioned the emperor nero who it's true in a <clears throat> gratuitous episode in 64 uh, ce or ad 
um, scapegoated the Christians after Rome was burnt down in a fire. This is when the emperor Nero was himself accused of famously fiddling while Rome burned. Um, he had so he had to put the blame on Which somebody else. Which is of course ludicrous. Of course, it's ludicrous. So he put the blame on somebody else, and. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, the Christian community was um, was scapegoated, and many of them were uh, were put to death. But apart from that, there was no systematic persecution until the third century. So we're 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 more than two hundred years after the death of Jesus. Ah, oh, the lovely third century. In the third century, <laughs> it's that time when the Roman uh, the Roman Empire Empire is going through a bad patch. Uh, there's a lot of civil war going on. Emperors are constantly deposing one another. And they're also, for the first time, really having to fight rather hard to defend Rome's frontiers against um, the outsiders whom they called barbarians. And ironically enough, it was two emperors in the middle of the third century who, um, <clears throat> one after the other at 10 year intervals, decided that the they really had to make an example of Christians in order to restore the goodwill of the gods to Rome. Rome was being under pressure on the frontiers. The emperor was about to lead an army to try to push back the barbarians and they issued edicts that everybody must make sacrifices according to the uh, the old, uh, the ancient religion. And if they didn't, they would be put to death. Mm. Now, uh, the two emperors who did this, one of them was Decius, who two years after his edict was killed himself fighting against the barbarians near the Danube River. The second 10 years later, the um, emperor uh, Valerian uh, did the same thing. And he took, led an army against the Persians. He was captured by the Persians and he died in captivity. So again, you know, the the idea of persecuting Christians didn't get a very good press right from the beginning. It may have been motivated by uh, a kind of old-fashioned appeal to the old gods, but if that was if that was the motivation, it didn't work very well. But there were these two periods of persecution, and then, for some reason, we don't really know why, at the end of the third century, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, who was the one who really pulled things together after a period of 50 years that were pretty chaotic, he decided at the very end of his reign, in the year 303, so into the 4th century now, he decided that Christians really were a bad thing and had to be uprooted. He, he, loved, he loved his cabbages, didn't he? He loved? His cabbages. Well, he went off to farm them in his, I mean, mm. he was the only Roman emperor, I think, who ever retired. And he went off to uh, his rather fabulous uh, palace that he'd built in the... Um, today in the Croatian town of Split, and you can still see the palace. Mm. Um, but he decided to persecute Christians, and a byproduct of that um, slightly underexplained policy was that during the 30 years that followed, 20 years that followed, suddenly, whether to persecute Christians or to support them became a burning political issue in the Roman Empire. It didn't have to be like that. We were still they were still talking about you know a very small minority at the most ten percent in and in some parts of the empire, probably well below that. Mm. but whether you were for or against this small minority really, really mattered. I mean, dare I say, and I probably daren't, but you know it's possibly <laughs> a little bit like the whole argument about you can't call it a debate about 
the position of trans people today. You know, very few people actually are trans, but there is a huge body of opinion that believes passionately um, and cares passionately about the treatment of people in that situation. I think yeah, you're wrong. It's been, one of them, isn't she? It was like, yeah, quite. Um, that's why, you know, dare I say this, but, you know, <laughs> I think with, with early Christians, it was somewhat comparable. It was a small group of people, but suddenly, and for not very clear reasons, the fate of these people and one's attitude to these people became a burning political issue. So the as after Diocletian first uh, retired and then died, his successors fought among themselves. Yeah, we forgot to mention that the Tetrarchy, I believe, is twelve. That's right. The Tetrarchy yeah. meant there were four emperors at the throne at the same time. <clears throat> that that was certainly worked out well. It worked out well. So the new Tetrarchy, after Diocletian resigned in three hundred six, there were four emperors, and they basically just they basically fought for twenty years to eliminate one another. Mm. And the one who came out on top was the man called Constantine. He defeated one emperor, one co-emperor, after having seen a vision in the sky in which he saw the Christian cross and he believed that the god of the Christians was on his side. Of course, this he is the won- Battle of Milvian Bridge. The famous Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Constantine, therefore, decided he became a patron of Christianity. He supported Christians. <coughs> he built churches. And during the final round, which lasted for another 10 years, his... Um, with his last co-emperor, a man called Licinius. Licinius was following the old policy of persecuting Christians. Therefore, Constantine made it his policy to support Christians. So when Constantine won, he defeated his last enemy in the year 324. Constantine came out as top dog. He's the uh, the one undisputed emperor of the entire Roman emperor. But he's done it on the back of defeating someone who persecuted Christians. Therefore, whether he meant it or not, you know, I thought, well, I've been a poor guy. Is he a committed Christian who always wanted to do this? Or is he mm. suddenly find he's landed with a debt that he's got to repay? We simply don't know. But in the in the episode about Byzantine Empire, which I've done several episodes on the Byzantines, but one of the earliest one we mentioned, it was mainly purely propaganda that Constantine converted, that it wasn't really, it wasn't really moral reasons, it was mainly propaganda that he converted, that he realized that this could be a tool, there seemed to be enough potential here that I could use, that that's his way of thinking more or less, that this could be a tool I can use for to gain popularity well, in my in my kingdom. Yeah, I mean, I'd be well. I haven't seen your podcast. I'd be interested to mm. see, you know, how you, you know how you how you handle that. It is a fascinating question. I mean, the truth is, we simply we simply don't know. Lots of historians have tried to psychologize Constantine to explain in more or less sort of, um, you know, I mean, it's a whole spectrum from the the deeply religious. His first biographer was a Christian oh. bishop, um, uh, who saw it all in, you know, very clearly religious terms, and. Uh, there is a, you know, there's a school of thought right to this day. I mean, Constantine is venerated as a saint in the Orthodox uh, Christian uh, Christian Church. Uh, many more, both at the time and up to today, many historians have taken more a more cynical or a more calculating view. And somewhere on that spectrum, 
the truth must lie. It may also be that there isn't a, there isn't a single uh, a single truth a single truth. There, there may have been an interplay between different uh, you know different uh, dif some degree between political calculation and religious faith. Um, Constantine, I mean, again, a bit like Alexander the Great. I mean, he doesn't come over to me, frankly, as a very sympathetic character. Right. I mean, it um, didn't. But it didn't. He kill his own son and boy, his, his mother, own, or something. He, well, he gave orders for his own son and one of his wives to be, uh, one of his wives to be to be killed mm. on on clearly rather seemingly rather spurious uh, spurious grounds. Mm. Um, he also. I mean, there's also there's he put up a famous statue of himself, much larger than life. Yeah. Only only the head and the toes survive. Uh, you can't judge much from the toes, but the head. Um, I mean, there's a picture. I mean, people with feet fetish can, but you know. Well, yeah, but, I mean, there's I you know the picture of the head is in my book. It's in many other books. You can see it all over the internet. He doesn't. He doesn't look very amiable to me. I must say. I but, mean, this you know, again. Before we move on, yeah. I want to ask. This is one of again. This is one of the big, one big what if questions. And I know historians kind of hate alternative history, but it's fun to speculate. I think. If Constantine had lost the Battle of Minimil Bridge, do you think that Christianity has been inevitable more in a way that it would have eventually, just later in the centuries, emerged as this main belief in the Roman Empire? And as, of course, Gibbon famously says that Christianity is the cause of the decline of the Roman Empire. But do you think that if he had lost, that Christianity would have become sooner or later the main main religion of the empire mm. possibly not you know it's very hard to tell i mean that's one of the uh, that's part of the question about constantine himself i mean because we just can't know what it was like at that what it felt like to be alive at that time i mean maybe even although this was quite a small group of people maybe you know it really was catching it was you know it was increasing maybe there was a kind of impetus coming up from below um sooner or later you were going to have to become christian so go with it um kind of catch the tide maybe that's what constantine was doing or maybe it was still a fringe movement that might still have gone nowhere i think if he'd lost the battle of the milvian bridge it's perhaps more likely it would have gone nowhere by the time he fought the second battle 12 years later in 324 and defeated licinius uh, across the strait from uh, Constantinople, if he'd lost that battle, you know, if Licinius had won and Licinius was persecuting Christians, maybe, you know, would that still have put it back? It's hard to tell. Or perhaps... It's, it's one of the defined you know, moments in history, isn't it, that Constantine... It is. I think it's during, you know, it's during the reign of Constantine from when he first comes to, he becomes one of the Tetrarchy in 306, and at that time, Christians are officially being persecuted throughout the empire until 324, when he defeats his last rival, who's an anti-Christian. And he becomes, you know, he becomes the official supporter of Christianity. Um, you know, that's the pivotal period of those 18 years um, when, you know, the weight, you know, the, the scales change from Christianity being an outlier to being the mainstream. It's not true, by the way. It's often said that Chris, that. Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Christian of the Roman Empire. That actually took another hundred years years to 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 happen, and it was done gradually. 
But what he did do was he began the process. He began the legislation. He began the building of churches, the grants to Christian organizations. Of course, the, fam of course, the famous Basilica-type church. Well, I mean, the Basilica was simply a Roman building, mm. um, and it became a church in the time of Constantine. Mm. Um, I mean, he, Constantine was the first person to declare Sunday a holiday, for example. Um, so, you know, there were institutionally Christianity was moving into the, it, it became, if you like, it became mainstream in the Roman Empire in the last years of Constantine's reign. But it, the change, the, the change to the official and only religion of the empire took almost 200 years to carry out. Right. And um, of course, well, what made it, was it made this decision that Rome is not really a significant place to have the capital of the Roman Empire anymore? And let's move it to what was then called Byzantium, the city of Byzantium, which eventually became Constantinople, of course. What, 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 how did it find out uh, this and end up here? Well, I'm realizing this is, this has turned into quite a long podcast. So perhaps, <laughs> this is a, perhaps this is the appropriate point at which to 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 end. That the, what we haven't mentioned so far is the one brilliant thing that Constantine undoubtedly did, right. whatever you think of his religion or his politics, and that was to take uh, a minor Greek city on the edge of the Bosphorus. It's called Byzantium, and rebuild it as an imperial capital. Because that city really thereafter controlled the passage from Europe into Asia for the next thousand years and indeed um, 1500 years. It's, um, it became one of the great world capitals. He called it after himself, he renamed it after himself, Constantine City, Constantinopolis or Constantinople. Mm -hmm. And that was the foundation that really very quickly came to supersede Rome itself as the most important city of the Roman Empire. And not, not only that, we discussed this in our episode of, about the fall of Constantinople two years ago as well, that Constantinople would eventually become one of the most important cities in world history as well. It would. Yeah. And to, to bring it back to the Greeks that we're talking about, although Constantine himself was a Roman and spoke Latin as his first language, it was a city in the Greek-speaking East. And before long, by the time it became an imperial capital, it would also be an imperial Greek-speaking capital. It would become the capital of a Greek-speaking empire, though it always called itself the Roman Empire. And that is what we're going to discuss in the next episode, because as we mentioned in the start, this is a two-part series, because it's such, we're going to go through 3,000 years of history here, so we, are, we decided that we're going to do this in two parts. So if you like this episode, I hope you're looking forward to the next episode, which will be about the Byzantine Empire and, the, and then eventually the Ottoman Empire, and then, of course, from Ataturk until today. And... Uh, this has been with that as well. Before you go, do you have anything you want to promote on the social media or anywhere people might find you if they have questions and where people might find your book? Should they be interested in buying your book? And of course, you should absolutely, like you said, read his book where he goes so much more detail. We only tip, I'm sure we only had the tip of the iceberg of what he writes about in the book. So where, where might people find your book if they are interested in reading it after listening to this episode? And anything else you want me to put in the link, a link in the description? 
Well, the book is the book is published in in Great Britain and throughout Europe uh, by Faber. It's available in paperback online and in I hope all good bookshops. Uh, it's published in the USA by uh, Basic Books, uh, and the paperback I think will be coming out shortly. Um, and it has been translated into a number of other languages uh, as well. Uh, you, I'm sure you can you can find the book uh, on the uh, on the internet. Um, and uh, if you want to find me, I don't have social media accounts, but I'm sure you can find me too. And uh, I'd like to so thank you very much for uh, giving me the time to talk about my book. I've very much enjoyed this part of our conversation and look forward to continuing it. Me too. This has been the Not H12. We are available on Twitter under the Not H12, Instagram, the Not H12. We are on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Please stay tuned for next week for part two of this podcast. I'm very much looking forward to recording that episode as well because Byzantium is one of my favorite empires. I'm not going to lie to you. And uh, if you are on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review if you like this episode. That would help us out a lot. If you are on YouTube, please subscribe. We are trying to get to a thousand subscribers this year. That would be brilliant if we did manage to get there. My name is Alan. This has been about age 12. And I hope to see you next time. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.